We're back in Genesis, Genesis 36. You can uh, find your way there. It's one of those texts when I was starting to prepare this a couple weeks ago. I was like, why did I decide to do this text? (laughs) Not an easy one to preach, and yet uh, God is faithful. His Word is here for a reason. And... um, We act on that basis. Oh, 36. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Abda, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Oholbamah, the daughter of uh, Ariah, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite. And Basimeth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebioth. And Adna bore to Esau Eliaphaz. Basmeth bore Reuel. And Ohol Ibama bore Jeosh, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all of the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan, He went into the land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliaphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau, Reuel, the son of Bashmoth, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliaphaz were Teman, Omar, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliaphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliaphaz. These are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel, Nathoth, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Bashmoth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, the daughter of Anab, the daughter of Zebion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs of Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. Okay. I'm making an editorial decision here. (laughs) These names are going to kill me and us. Okay. Uh, key, key sentence here in 31. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. And he lists a number of them. That will be good for now. Okay? Why don't we pray? Father, the holy history that is recorded here was written down for our instruction. Uh, these people are examples to us on whom the ends of the ages has come. 
These events remind us of the power of self-deception, of pleasure and idolatry. They also remind us that you are faithful. And so texts like these are one way that you guard us from such temptations. I ask that you would instruct us now that we might enjoy the earthly benefits of our eternal salvation in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, If you're someone who likes to collect rocks, you have probably heard of pyrite. Chemical background, Fe, S2. Iron, sulfide. Looks like gold, but it's not. This is why it's called fool's gold. You may have heard it by that particular name. I think of that as I think about Esau. He's sort of like fool's gold in a sense. He looks like God's blessing is upon him, and yet, in a sense, it's not. It looks like he's God's pe- one of God's people, but he's really not. He is, in fact, a son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham, and yet, he is not. We're going to look at Esau today. We're going to wrap up Esau today. Because uh, God wraps it up tidy, boom, one chapter with lots of names that are unpronounceable to us. So, um, but the big idea I want us to kind of consider as we kind of as we look at this passage is that God often moves slowly and surely in the lives of His people, because what we're going to see in the life of Esau is very fast in a lot of ways, um, and we'll kind of draw on that a little bit as we go. So. First thing for us, as we look at this, us upon whom the ends of the ages has come, is that we must trust God to keep his covenant promises. This text, this chapter begins with this phrase, uh, the generations of Esau, the the Toledot. This is one of the devices that Moses uses to introduce a new section of the book. And it basically, it says it's about Esau, but really it's about his descendants. And so it's about what's, what takes place uh, in Esau's family. Okay, This is a very short section. As I said, it's only one chapter. And then we're going to resume. It's going to actually, chapter 37 kind of picks up with what's going on. Uh, actually, in verse 2, you see, these are the generations of Jacob. This is the Toledot of Jacob, new section. Okay, So, because um, Esau is about to disappear from this story altogether until the people of the wilderness generation encounter Edom once again. That's part of why this, this text keeps saying, Esau, who is Edom? wants them to know. Edom, they're relatives. They come from Esau. So Moses wants them, wants them to know about that. His, uh, <clears throat> where we are historically is that Jacob has returned to the land of promise. We're not sure exactly how long they, they uh, lived in the land of promise at the same time, okay? But there's the question of will Esau and Jacob struggle with one another just as they struggled in the past before he, uh, Isaac, not Isaac, yeah, before Jacob left the promised land. Now that he's back, are they going to return to their struggle for the blessing? That is an important question, and that is part of what Moses is answering in this very short chapter. He answers this with with this phrase, that Esau went into a land away from his brother. 
the land itself was too small for both of them, precisely because God had prospered both of the brothers. He wants us to be reminded of what happened with Lot and with Abram, of how the land was too small for them, and to think about the struggles, because now in in Genesis 13, we're reminded of, we're told of the struggles, the conflict that began to erupt between the people who, who were in Abram's household and the people in Lot's household, and they had to come to this decision that it was best for them to part ways, and Abram, perhaps foolishly from our perspective, trusted God enough to say to Lot, you pick where you want. And Lot, on the surface, chose wisely but in reality chose poorly because he ended up in Sodom. This time there's no such deliberation that takes place. Moses just kind of says he leaves. He recognizes that this is not going to work, and he leaves. In the midst of this, we have to remember that God kept his promise to Jacob. Okay? Moses doesn't spell all that out to us, but we need to to recognize that taking place right here because God is in control because of God's sovereignty and we see God's providence that even though Esau had no mind to the promise, still God's promise is kept through Esau departing from the land. He keeps his promise to Jacob. He remains in Canaan while Esau leaves for Seir. Not only that, but we see that Esau's blessing that he received from Isaac also holds true. In Genesis 27, we go back to that time when when Jacob has just deceived his father. He has just gotten the, the blessing that was, in at least in Isaac's mind, meant for Esau, not in God's mind. Okay, And Esau's like, is there anything left for me? And so Isaac says this. Then, his, then Isaac, his father, answered him and said, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. This blessing is held true. Seir was not a fertile place. Of abundance. He's leaving the relative prosperity of Canaan to go into the relative uh, lack, shall we say, in Seir. But we recognize, even in this text, that Esau seems to be, have grown into a powerful man. Let's remember that when he came to greet his brother, when his brother returns to the land, how many men did he bring with him? Six, seven, twenty, forty? 400. And the, the, Moses is indicating here that Esau continued to grow in power. And so he's grown much bigger than that, those 400 hired men who were armed. Esau becomes a powerful man who grows more powerful, and when he goes to the land of Seir, he conquers it. He does not go merely as a sojourner, but he ends up becoming the top dog he begins to move the people of the land out as he lives by the sword in accordance with the promise that was given to him through his father Isaac. Edom becomes a nation with kings 
eight kings long before Israel did. Now, we see in this also that God keeps his word to Abraham. Genesis 17, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations. Not just a nation, but plural, nations. Edom is one of the nations that God makes him in, makes Abraham into, and kings shall come from you. And so even though Esau despised the birthright, selling it for a bowl of porridge, even though he despised the land by just giving up and walking away and moving to another land, even though he did these things, God still keeps his promise to Abraham and not only makes him a nation, but makes him a powerful nation within that region for a period of time. God kept his promise to Abraham. Why is this here? I think partly because Israel needed to know that God keeps his promises. And if he's going to keep his promises concerning Esau, how much more, as John Calvin notes, will he keep his promises to Israel? Far greater. I mean, if you're an Israelite and you're reading this, this means that either the, uh, the exodus has, is about to take place or has recently taken place, and, and you probably have some fear and some doubt as to whether or not God is going to keep the promises that he made, and Moses wants you to know that God has already kept those promises that regard, with regard to Esau, and so how much more will he keep the promises to the one he loves when he keeps the promises to the one who rejected him? So Israel was to be encouraged and strengthened as they're preparing for the wilderness journeys and as they prepare to go into the promised land that God is a faithful God. And so we who often come up against trial and and hardship and affliction need to remember that God is a faithful God who continues to keep his promises and we can trust him in the midst of our difficulty. He is going to do exactly what he promised to do. Let us not Fear. We need this assurance, this reassurance that he is faithful. And this text gives us some of that reassurance. So the God that we Christians worship is one who faithfully keeps the promises that he makes. The second part, the second thing I want us to consider as we look at this is we, are, we do not equate earthly blessings with eternal blessings. We see here that God has poured an abundance of earthly blessings upon Edom, sorry, Esau and then Edom, the nation that comes from him. We see in this text that his material wealth grows, so much so that Canaan cannot support him and his brother any longer. We see that he grows in military strength to the point that he can conquer the Horites and Seir. He moves to a land where they make their living due to the trade routes. One of the things that is there is balsam, a spice, a fragrance. I mean, you know, it, it's used as in perfume and incense. It was, that was there, and they were able to sell that on, because of the trade routes that came through that region. And so God enriched Esau with earthly blessings, but we have to remember, Jacob got eternal blessings too. 
Esau didn't get that. His was just for the now, not for the forever. Jacob got some for now, but most for forever. Israel was not to look upon Edom and to see earthly blessings as a sign of eternal blessings. They were not to look and say, this is what it looks like for God to bless us that we have, that we're powerful, that we're rich. And yet that's what the trap that they ended up falling into. They did not heed the lesson of this text. They fell into that very same thinking and began to equate earthly blessings, money particularly, with God's blessing. As though the only, the only marks that, that God is at work in you is because you're wealthy and you're powerful. They fell into the trap. And we can often fall into this trap, even if we don't go as far as the health wealth gospel. We, we begin to think that, that life will be easy if God is with us. And the life of Joseph is about to strip us of that false notion in a little bit. Um, we think that we'll be more successful than, than uh, if God loves us. But think about what's about to happen in the life of Israel. Israel is about to be sent to Egypt, and it is there that they will go into slavery. God is about to send them into hardship. We talked about fool's gold, counterfeit for gold. Well, there's another counterfeit that comes to my mind. Cubic zirconia. Looks like a diamond, but it's not worth what a diamond is worth. But how do you get a diamond? You have to have the carbon, and it has to be put under incredible pressure for an extended period of time to be made into something as strong as a diamond that it cuts through glass. And what God is about to do, Esau is basically the cubic zirconia, but God is going to make a diamond out of Israel. He is going to put them under hardship to make them a great people, a significant people, a valuable people. That's what he does with us. We, you know, as I think about the trials that Bill is going through right now, um, you know, I, I can't help but just be reminded of Romans five and and James chapter one. The fact that it, it is perseverance through the midst of hardship that produces character, which results in maturity. You do not have spiritual maturity by taking a pill. Uh, you know, it's, it, there's no steroids, you know, to build spiritual faith, anything like that. Okay? There's no, there's no shortcut to this. It has to be done the old-fashioned way. And in God's plan, that often requires hardship, difficulty, so that we develop endurance, and perseverance, and we begin to mature, it's the pressing of the carbon into making a diamond. That's what's about to happen in the life of Israel, and that's what happens in our lives. And so the true sign of God's love 
is eternal blessing, not earthly blessing. Let's not confuse them. Third thing I want us to consider from this text is to repent or slowly drift into apostasy. We have to start to the beginning, go back to the beginning of Esau's life. We have to go back to the fact that on the eighth day, he was circumcised in accordance with the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 17. Esau, just as much as his brother Jacob, is a child of the covenant. Okay? But just like his uncle Ishmael, he despised the promise of God. The promise was there. It could be had by him by by faith, but he despised it, just like uh, Ishmael did. He thought it of no significance, of no importance, and he turned away from it. Esau, as we saw before, earlier in his life, was a man of the moment. He was a man who lived for the now, who lived to satisfy his appetites. And we see this again in this text. He took wives from the Canaanites. He took wives without a thought to his own holiness, to his own sanctification, to to God's word that had been given through uh, Abraham and his parents. He thought only to his appetites. They're pretty. I want them. I'm getting them. That is where he took his wives. It was after his mother complained about the Hittite and the Hivite that he finally took what he thought was a better wife, an Ishmaelite. Okay? Let's think about a moment here. About these wives, just for a moment. One of them the one whose name is nearly impronounceable, um, Oholibima, Holibama, yeah. Sometimes I just don't like Hebrew at all. This, this name means something, and what it means is tent of a high place. What's a high place? It's where people went to worship. Not the true God, but false gods. She was named after a pagan tabernacle. She comes from an idolatrous family. And remember that the Israelites were warned against taking their their wives from these other nations because they, they had to recognize that they would bring their gods with them and they would corrupt the worship of Israel. And this is exactly what Esau does. He marries a woman who worships a false God. A third idolatrous wife. His oldest child, the firstborn, the most important one from their perspective, was named Eliaphaz. Eliaphaz means, my God is gold. Money. Essentially, he's saying, I worship money. So much so that he he names his son that. I mean, in a sense, he gets it. He reveals his own heart in the naming of this son. Talk about fool's gold. Here we have it 
in the name of his son. Eliaphaz is fairly significant. Eliaphaz, it appears, it lived from Taman, which was in Seir. We can read that in verse 40 if you want. In Job chapter 2, we meet someone who is from that town whose name happens to be Eliaphaz. Most likely, this Eliaphaz. Because he speaks about the Lord to Job, doesn't quite get it right. <laughs> he is one of Job's less than wise counselors, but we see him reappearing in another place of Scripture. Job takes place during the life of the patriarchs. At some point, uh, you know, in the life of Eliaphaz, he encounters righteous Job, comes to greet him in his sorrow and comes up short with his counsel. Not just that, but we have Eliaphaz, who takes a concubine, and by her has a son. And that son's name is Amalek, and he seems to be ostracized from the rest of the clan, and he basically ends up forming another nation by his own name, the Amalekites, a nation that would become treacherous in its own right. As Israel prepares to go into the promised land, we see a couple of things. First, in Deuteronomy 23, we see, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. Now, this does not mean that they were supposed to warmly embrace the Edomites, okay? because they recognized the spiritual problem and the conflict that is there, but they were to treat them fairly well. Eventually, David would conquer the Edomites, and so we see the other part of of Isaac's promise given to them, that the yoke shall be put upon them. And for a long period of time, the Edomites were under the rule of Israel before they finally threw off the yoke, as Isaac said they would. But that's not all that happened as they were coming in. We see in Exodus 17, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven because Amalek dealt treacherously with Israel, and eventually they would be wiped out. All goes back to Esau. All flowing out of the fact that Esau, through his lack of repentance, slowly drifted into apostasy, turning turning his back on the God of his father and his grandfather would redeem them. He was familiar with the true God. He was circumcised. He was instructed. He grew up in a family that embraced the true religion, but he himself rejected this God, and his, his people, Edom, embraced false religion. Archaeologists have discovered idols upon idols, idols of stone, idols of pottery. This is like all over the place in what is in Edom. Even though Israel was known for its idolatry and syncretism later on in their national history, you don't see these kind of stockpiles of idols that you find in Edom. What seemed to be a slow drift at first, almost imperceptible, because you have Eliaphaz taking the name of the Lord and speaking to Job, eventually becomes full-blown apostasy 
where they completely rejected any notion of the living and true God and worshipped little things made of stone and pottery. Didn't happen overnight. It wasn't one decision. The slow drift. And so Edom serves as a warning to Israel. They were supposed to read this and, and know, you know, hey, yeah, they came from us. You know, he was circumcised too. And, and what happened? Look what happened to them. They're worshiping all these false gods now. We've come back and we've reconnected with them a little bit and we recognize that they do not worship the same God we worship. This could happen to us. And this can happen to us as well. Counterfeits. Counterfeit money. Looks like money. And if you get a, uh, a clueless clerk, it could spend like money. <laughs> but if you get a wise clerk, and now you have those all, almost, I just gave, I usually don't carry, I don't spend cash, I don't carry cash. But I actually spent cash while we were up north this week. And what do they do? They, I gave them a 20, and that comes that magic pen. This is good money. What happens if it doesn't come out as good money? I'm in trouble. Counterfeits. My father-in-law bought the great value tortilla chips while he was in town. I now mock them. They are not a great value. They may be cheap, but they aren't good. I tried to polish them off last night. It's hard work polishing them. You know, counterfeits. They're just not the same thing. They're not valuable. Okay? These counterfeit gods are not valuable, and sometimes people can look like Christians, but not really be Christians. We can grow apathetic. We can take our eyes off of Christ and the gospel. We can, we can kind of drift. That's why there are warnings in the New Testament. In particular, I think of 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea. And catch this. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. What's Paul saying? Don't think that because you got baptized that everything is okay. Don't think that because you partake of the Lord's table on a regular basis that that means it's all okay. As though going through the ritual is all that matters. Okay? Because the people of the Exodus generation, they were baptized. They had the same spiritual drink, the same spiritual food. Paul, because he's about to go into the, the, some doctrine of the, of the Lord's table and the problems that were going on in Corinth, and he's saying, don't Deceive yourself into thinking that just because you do the right things when you go to worship, that everything is okay. They had that, but they sought 
pleasure and idols, and they fell in the wilderness. That's scary stuff. Now, we don't know about their eternal state. It's quite possible that they were um, saved despite their disobedience. We don't know. The text is not clear. I don't think any of us wants to go home early because of our disobedience. If we have the Holy Spirit within us, if our hearts are regenerate, there's a desire to please and honor God. Just like most of us want to please and honor our earthly parents, unless they're despicable human beings. But I I haven't really heard any of you who have those parents. Maybe you do, and I don't know yet. You can come later and tell me, okay? Um, I have office hours. You can come. We can talk about it. Um, But he's warning them about this. But he's also reminding them that God is faithful. There is a way out. Just because the temptation exists doesn't mean that you have to give in to that temptation, but that God has provided a way out for you precisely because God is faithful. To these very same people, he writes in his second letter, the 13th chapter, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. We're so much better at testing other people, aren't we? Paul says, test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet that test. What was the test? What were they supposed to be looking for? It was not the outward things that they were supposed to be looking for, but he says that Jesus Christ is in you. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Is there a desire for holy things? Is there a desire to read God's Word? Is there a desire to pray? Is there a desire for obedience? These are indications that Christ is in you. A love for Christ. A cherishing of His work for you as the sole basis for your salvation. That's the issue here. Not, I walked the little old lady down the street this week. Yep, I made sure I went to church this week. That is very important. But it's not the outward doing of these things that matter. It's faith in Christ. True faith continues to seek Christ in the Word. True faith continues to seek Christ in the sacraments. True faith continues to seek Christ in repentance. Because true faith says, I want nothing to become, to come between me and Jesus. And so when I go astray, I want to get back. The reality of repentance. And so for the truly converted person, what happens is though we may go astray, we always come back. Sometimes some of us are stubborn. It may take a little while for us to realize our sin. The other night on vacation, I got really unrighteously angry at something, you know. And I, I kind of I, I knew it, but I wasn't ready to 
repent yet. <laughs> you know. So you know, but you know, as I'm trying to sleep and I'm thinking about these things, I, I knew I needed to uh, apologize and seek the forgiveness of uh, my brothers and sisters-in-law. You know, and that happened the next morning, and you know, everything was fine. But you know. You, when you recognize you've done wrong, the regenerate heart wants to make it right through repentance. But the heart of an Esau, which is a heart of stone, doesn't care. And it just continues. And so while outwardly there may be a profession of Christ, there's no inward reality there, and that person becomes to look less and less like they should look, and they are eventually revealed to be the counterfeit that they really are. You and I, most of us, probably, okay, there are a few people here who can, particularly over here, cannot identify a counterfeit bill. But eventually it gets discovered by someone who knows. Counterfeit Christians will eventually be discovered. It may not happen for a number of years, but eventually it comes to light. That's part of what I I think we have to learn from the life of Esau. Do we really cherish the promise? Counterfeits, lookalikes, common in our world. And they point us to the fact that sometimes people look like they belong to God's people, but really they don't. Esau, circumcised on the eighth day, raised in a God-fearing home by God-trusting parents. He looked like a man with God's blessing on him his prosperity, his influence, his power. But it was all earthly and not at all eternal. So what are we looking for? Are we we expecting success and prosperity or are we expecting grace under pressure? God is faithful, as Paul says, to keep his promises to those who receive them by faith. And so don't settle for some cheap cheap imitation of the Christian life. But seek the real thing. Christ in you. Why don't we pray? Father, I thank you for your faithfulness to Esau because of your love for Abraham and Isaac and the promises that you made to them. And yet we recognize that Esau lived on borrowed capital, that through his sin and rebellion it would soon be squandered. And we see how his, his people, his descendants, did not know you but worshipped other gods. And may such a thing really stir within us a sense of, of seriousness. As we think about our own covenant children, that we would continue to call them to faith and repentance so that they don't just look like they belong, like Esau did for so long, but that they, by faith, would cling to those promises you have made for us in Christ Jesus. 
but even more than that, that we would cling to those things. That we would have those blessings, those eternal blessings, even now, because of the gospel. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.